Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, with the end of the year fast approaching, we invited a couple of our regular guests, Laura Babcock and Graham Crawford, to recap some of the challenges and fiascos that Hamilton faced in 2019. Also, SNC-Lavalin gets a plea deal. Trump gets impeached. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The first thing I want to do here today is, is well, initially we had set this up as kind of a year-end review of, of local stories, because uh, there have been a number of them, of course, over the last number of, uh, 12, I guess, the 12 months, really, of this year. It started early in January. But uh, in light of the fact that uh, probably the major ones, the most impactful stories about local politics and uh, local governance here uh, have happened in the last little while, we may not uh, go too far back in the time here, because I've got... A long list here, and a number of people I want to talk to and about uh, uh, when it comes to some of the local issues here. Uh, pleased to be welcomed, uh, welcoming rather in studio with Laura Babcock, who is the president of Power Group. Laura, thank you. Thanks, Bill. Happy to be here. And the uh, reigning citizen of the year. Uh, waning days of that, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, Graham Crawford. Coming class. to an end, Bill. <laughs> uh, and, well, the, the couple of these. And first of all, you guys have been guests many, many times on some of these key issues, and you've been very vocal and very passionate about the community. Uh, and, and in an overview, I think probably the first thing we can talk about before we get into some of the nuts and bolts here, if nothing else, what I have seen here this year is a community that has become engaged. I mean, anybody that ever mm-hmm. thought that there was an apathy and a, you know that and a, a, an uncaring attitude here, uh, I, we've seen just the opposite. Sometimes for all the wrong reasons, but but there it is. Well, I love that, and you know, I am essentially an optimist. I always try to look for the silver lining, even when things are incredibly frustrating. As you know, Bill, we did a whole O show on Anis Ribelis. It's been a very difficult year. That being said, though, the level of engagement is way up, and I think there's reasons for that. The Red Hill Valley Parkway, the fact that people had died on that road and it might have been prevented, I think really got to a lot of people. But then there were people who didn't really drive on the road, and so they weren't as connected. Some of the other issues that we've seen that I'm sure we'll get to might have dealt with different groups, and those groups became passionately engaged. When we hit Sewergate, because it involved people's safety, animals, the environment, uh, and it was such a massive, I mean, 24 billion of anything is a huge story. And so I think that really connected with the broader community, and I've never seen a level of engagement and unified voice like that. And then, of course, LRT, which we'll get to. Graham and I have been on this show over the years passionately supporting LRT. Mm -hmm. We're huge LRT proponents. My company did the first video years and years ago about this with the city. So I think between everything that's happened this year, people have found a reason to say, hey, I want to fight for this city. I want to fight for good governance. I want to fight to make it better for our children. The Thing, there's going to be a common theme here, Graham, and I can see this developing because it's, I've, I've seen it as the stories have developed. Uh, stuff happens, yeah. and a lot of it bad, and, and sometimes things are way beyond the control of, of mm-hmm. those who are, are in governance, for instance. But I think one of the, the subtext and, and maybe a consistent story through this is not so much that that happened. It's how our elected representatives responded to it that I think is gave, uh, giving an, an awful lot of people a, a, a great deal of concern. Well, indeed, and I think a lot of engaged residents are have indeed become enraged residents. Uh, we're sick and tired of it. All roads lead to City Hall, seemingly, on these major issues, Bill. Laura's mentioned uh, uh, you know, a number of the big ones. But as you know, Bill, I've spoken with you about the LGBTQ plus community yep. and the response by police and our mayor and by our councillors on that. Uh, the IT scandal. Uh, with the employee who was part of a supremacist or purportedly supremacist white uh, group. Um, but there, there are also you know, other issues that keep coming up, and the inaction or the inability to take the right kind of action or even to provide the right kind of messaging from senior people, veteran counselors who should know better, but what they do is they hide, and we're all just fed up with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hurting our city. It's hurting our self-image, let alone our image beyond Hamilton. I want to let's start with that, with Pride Week and what happened there. I, and I have, a, like I said, I compiled a list last evening, and including the, the process about hiring a city manager and, and how they kind of kicked that around and, and messed that up. With and went out of in town. camera meetings, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but in Laura, in hindsight, that's small potatoes compared <laughs> to what happened subsequent to that. And, and I want to start with, with Pride because we're still feeling the, the effects of, of, as you, I think, described, uh, inaction. Uh, about the events. We're still not sure what happened, how it happened. I understand that they were investigating it, quote-unquote. But the reality here is that it's had a huge impact on this community. It, it has had a huge impact, and I'm talking to lots of people who are hurting and being hurt, literally, Bill, as we speak. 
So it, it's not just something that happened at a moment in time a few months ago. It continues every day, the kind of hate uh, towards people in the community, in the LGBTQ plus community, who are trying to organize and, and push back and fight back and do their very best to support each other. But we're not getting the kind of support and empathy from our leaders. And Fred Eisenberger is probably one of the worst ones. He is the mayor, after all. He claims to represent all Hamiltonians. That's his mandate, unlike councillors who represent their ward constituents. And he's failing us at every turn. He's not showing any empathy towards our community. When we talk about the uh, the events of, of that particular time, Laura, invariably, mm-hmm. I think well, in many people's minds, they start thinking about the event, uh, the uh, occurrence at Gage Park. But I thought it started, at least in my mind, a few days before that, uh, when uh, the, the LGBT subcommittee uh, refused to be there for the flag raising at City Hall. And I thought, well, that's odd. And we had Cameron Crochet on there, and, yep. and, and he explained exactly. And I thought, well... That doesn't sound like the city's really being supportive of the work that they're doing. And, and that seemed to be the canary in the, in the coal mine. Absolutely. That was a difficult decision for them to take, to not be a part of the raising of the pride flag. And the decision that they took to go to the park for their picnic was because they had felt that they had been intimidated and chased off of the forecourt in previous years. So for many of us uh, who are not part of that community, I was not aware of the systemic um, abuses happening towards them by people who hate them. I mean, I've never gone to a picnic with my family and friends, Bill, and had people show up with hate signs and trying to provoke and and hurt me. I I mean, it's just devastating what our community goes through. Uh, And then uh, what really was painful and eye-opening to me is Obviously, they tried to alert the police, you know, we are going to experience this kind of hate and provocation and and, uh, possibly attack, you know, please be there for us. And we saw a substandard at best police uh, response. And I'm glad that there's an investigation going into that. But it was the reality after that that, and you touched on it, uh, both of you, when you talked about messaging. Even if uh, city leaders did not know exactly what went down and needed to have a police investigation, the messaging around it was so additionally painful. And that's been my biggest frustration coming from my lens as a communications expert. So many unforced errors. You know, even if you can't deal with these very difficult issues of discrimination and and all these other things going on, you can at least strike a tone of empathy and of unity and of trying to bring people together. And I know that that tone is being struck now to try to fight for LRT and, and, uh, and I'll support that as much as I can. But we have to also realize that so many of the, the scandals and things that have happened have been because of lack of communication, of not providing details, information, of not responding in a timely manner, of mm-hmm. not showing concern or even understanding the need that people had to be spoken to um, with information and honesty and empathy. And so that has been, to me, the biggest disappointment. The offshoot of that is, is what happened in the forecourt at City Hall subsequent weekends, uh, and still is occurring. Still happening, yeah. Uh, and that, of course, are the demonstrations on Saturdays uh, and the confrontations that have happened. Uh, I've told both of you guys, I mean, I was born in this city. I've spent my entire life in this city. I love this city very, very much. I, I like to think I know a lot about the people in this community. I was shocked to see that kind of behavior. I, I mean, mm-hmm. and, and all of a sudden, I mean, you, there have been demonstrations in the City Hall forecourt for a variety of things over the years. We get that. But for, for that element to consistently show up there, and we developed a reputation. And I know some people bristle when I say this, but, you know, I keep in touch with the national media. And we were the, quote, the city of hate. And not only you, but, I mean, Bernie Farber was on yeah. your show, and he said Hamilton is a large city now. It's become the epicenter of this of this horrible nonsense that's going on in our culture. Uh, and we saw that we actually had the most reported hate crimes. It was the front page of major media and nothing to do with us saying the city of Steel Town or Hate Town. I mean, those were the headlines, right? So I, I think for people, again, who don't go down to City Hall, and I don't usually go there on Saturdays, but when I started to hear what was happening down there, I started to go. And, you know, you know that um, Fred Eisenberger and myself and PJ Mercanti worked really hard to get that Hamilton sign, yep. and, I, and, I, and it was to send a positive, bright, proud message of mm-hmm. our community. When and, and I'm very grateful to both of them for that. But when we started to see that these hate groups were using it for propaganda, we're, we're just plunking down and kind of owning that territory in front of the Hamilton sign, and they're yelling at people getting off the bus, and they're holding up signs that you know are harmful and hurtful to so many marginalized communities. That wasn't okay with me as a civic leader. I had to go down there. I had to stand in solidarity uh, and say, you know what, this is our city hall forecourt. You don't just get to camp out here week after week and intimidate and harass 
uh, citizens. Well, just two weeks ago, I'm sorry, but I'm still angry. Just two weeks ago, there was somebody taking down unlawful posters, and they got pushed into the road, and possibly in front of oncoming traffic, and, 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 and kicked in the head like their head was a kicked soccer ball. Head. So this happened two weeks ago. So I just want people to understand, this is not only happening in Hamilton, but Hamilton, as Bernie Farber said, has become an epicenter, and we need to, as a community, stand up for all of our citizens. Well, indeed, and this is where I'm looking for you. One of the things that is just a truism, Bill, is you cannot not communicate. So everything you do, even if you're silent, sends a message. And the, and councils and the mayor's silence is sending a message to those hate groups. It encourages them. They've actually brought signs. We've seen them. We have photographs of them thanking the mayor and council for their support of the police they, from the hate groups. Uh, there's a reason that happens. And then part of the problem is when the response is sort of generic media releases that were written like they, as I've said before, they could have been pulled out of a drawer and been in there for six years. They have nothing to do with what's going on right now. There's no currency to them. This is a problem. And all you have to do is look at messaging around around Red Hill and Coots. And now sewer no, we'll, we'll get into those. and yeah. sewer gates, by the way, then we need to add an S to that because now we know there were two but, gates. But, Graham, what happens there. instead, in some councils' minds anyway, is denial. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we saw the reports. I talked about those reports. Uh, those were compiled by Hamilton Police, by the way, and others that talked about the number of hate crimes. And, and on a per capita basis, we have the worst record in this country. Yet some councillors simply said, well, I don't believe the numbers. Uh, you know by, the, by the way, there's a lot of that going on at council these days. I guess I just don't believe the numbers, so I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to address them. This, 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 you've got to have a reality check here. You well, call it denial, but I have to say I think it's survival. When I look at so many of the through threads on this, having done analysis of local politics for over 20 years in this town since I moved here, really, uh, there is a sense of they isolate themselves away from problems that they think will in any way be deleterious to their. But best problem, Laura, is going on right under their nose, it's I right know, under their offices, and that's what made it so. Incredible incredibly shameful that we had to go down as civic leaders on our Saturdays to stand our ground uh, because our elected politicians who work in those very offices behind us couldn't be bothered to protect the front porch of our city, right? I just, it's disgraceful. But I, but this communication issue, when you look at the rapid response communications we've seen in the last week from the mayor's office, in particular around LRT, it's not that they're not capable of, right. of creating in it's the moment choice. responsive, powerful messaging. It's a choice. And so when they make a decision collectively or individually to hold back information about a toxic sewage spill or hold back information about LRT or hold back a response to what happened to our LGBTQ for a couple of days, whether, whether, you know, it's a choice or red, it's an absolute choice. And that choice is not done, I don't think, from uh, it's not just denial. I think it's done for political survival. I think it's done out of arrogance, thinking that you don't have to bother. And you mentioned, I just have to say, the other media markets. I do shows in Toronto all the time. And I can tell you, there's John Tory's not a perfect mayor, but if something comes up, even at the 6.30 news in the morning, he's usually on the phone to radio and TV stations trying to respond and give his city the messaging he feels they need in that moment to have better information and even an apology or whatever else. We don't get that here, and, and that is incredibly frustrating. Well, there's there's an element here of responsibility as far as counselors are concerned, and I'm, I know that it sounds like we're trying to throw these guys under the bus, but I mean, this is this is a, a, a very, very important job in this community, uh, and, and they get well paid for this, and most of them have been there for a long, long time, and uh, if you've got a thin skin, <laughs> too bad, so sad. Because uh, when you look at that and the, the denial there, same sort of thing happened with the Red Hill. The first reaction we got from a lot of the councillors was, oh, no, you know what, it's driver error. It's their fault. Mm -hmm. It's not our fault. Right. Now we find out it is. And, and, we can, we, and we should it's, rally. It's, it's deflection. We sh it is. We should rally around our council's efforts to save LRT. It's not a billion-dollar project. It is a multi-million, if not billion, development opportunity and generational change. So in times of great crisis, when you're dealing with other levels and other players, yes, unity is an important thing. Uh, yes, LRT, we all need to work together. That does not mean that we cannot sit here as intelligent people who have been citizens and, and engaged for many years and identify that so many of these issues have underneath them, poor governance, poor communication. There's so much arrogance that seems to be behind withholding information from the public in this community. And I just don't think Hamiltonians are willing to put up with it anymore, if, nor should we. If we save LRT, it will be in spite of our leaders. 
it will be because of a groundswell of people like Joe Mancinelli and people with YesLRT and just individual residents who understand and see the vision and understand the implications and who have taken the 60 minutes to go up to Kitchener and actually see what one looks like, read some facts about what's happening in Kitchener-Waterloo and saying, why should that be taken away from us? And yet, Bill, we have silence. You cannot not communicate. We have silence from the majority of council on LRT. Uh, Joe mentioned that yesterday, that he doesn't think this whole thing is dead. He's angry, and you heard the interview I did, I did with him yesterday. Yeah. But uh, I've known Joe Mancinelli for many, many years, and there's a lot of things that uh, people have said, Joe, you're going to ever get that done, and, and he's done it, so we'll see. We have to do a break. Uh, let's uh, exhale. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Laura Babcock from Power Group and a uh, citizen of the year, Graham Crawford, are with us. Uh, kind of a year-end review. Uh, about some of the major issues that have uh, really dominated the news on the local front here in the last little while. There are two that I want to get to in this segment uh, with our panel, and I'm going to do them in reverse order. I do want to talk about the sewer gate thing because that's still ongoing, and we still don't know as much as we need to know about that. But the other one, obviously, was the big news from earlier this week when uh, the the Minister, of course, of Transportation, Caroline Mulroney, walked into town and uh, well, I was going to say she announced that they were withdrawing the funding. I guess officially she never has, because uh, no. she never stood in front of a microphone. No, I, I thought- was there, actually, Bill. I, I went down to the hotel, and at first, as I think people know, there are probably 75 people there, including some counselors and the mayor, and we're not allowed in the room. It was going to be for media only, which seemed kind of odd. And then uh, the mayor and counselors pushed their way in. Then the public followed. And the person who didn't follow was Minister Caroline Mulrooney. She was hiding in a room along with Donna Skelly uh, somewhere else. And then the podium was taken off the stage and it was canceled. And then they turned to Fred, who made the announcement on behalf of the minister, which made no sense to me at all why he would assume the burden for bad news. But that's what happened. And, and, and we're getting drips of information about how this happened and, and, and the lead up to this, yes. which is even more bizarre. Well, bizarre is a, a nice way of phrasing it. Uh, what the Ford government did is despicable. You don't take a 15-year or 12-year, however long it's been, project that has had 50-plus votes and hundreds of millions of dollars pumped into it and all kinds of commitments and expropriations and everything else. It is the future of the city, that LRT. It's not about the train. It's not about getting two minutes faster from one end to the other. It's about and we've seen this proven out, not just in Hamilton, but in other cities. It is about the economic development nodes along that corridor. It's about the opportunity to redo all of our infrastructure under those roads that we would have had to do anyway. So there's a lot of reasons, and I'm glad that Joe Mancinelli and others are not taking this lying down and they're fighting. It was despicable. Carolyn Mulrooney coming into town made no sense. If you're going to do a kill shot, do it from Queen's Park. To come into town, then to run out, has had her pilloried nationally, uh, and deservedly so. It was just just a ridiculous one. I thought, I thought seeing Patrick Brown run down the stairs on his own was a bad presser. Carol Mulrooney not even coming out and then having to get a police escort. Absolutely ridiculous. So you know what? The province needs to reverse this. They, they can. They have on other things. The pressure needs to be there. And... And the fact that the mayor had a heads up on his single biggest mandate issue, which is LRT, how he won the election, and decided not to meet again with the ministry unless they met his terms, not to build that relationship, because this is all about, yeah, there's nasty politics at play. I'm not, I'm not some, you know, um, person who doesn't understand that Andrea Horvath's riding has the LRT and that Doug Ford is known for taking his revenge on people. Uh, I'm talking about John Tory, of course, and the Toronto City Council. The fact is there's dirty politics happening provincially on this. Sure there but is. The, but also, also, the mayor should have told councillors and key stakeholders about this. If he didn't sign the NDA non-disclosure agreement, then he had no reason not to let people help him out. Let me show you something. I, I'm going to read this to you uh, because I agree with you totally. And I, I talked to Brad Clark and others about this too. And by the way, the silence of the other people in council right now is deafening on this Isn't issue too. Yeah. This, is, this is Thursday. That was Monday. <laughs> and I've only heard from one or two councillors about this. Uh, but that aside for just a second, uh, we found out now, according to the Mulroney's office, that uh, the mayor and, and her met at least twice yep. back in September. Uh, and there were some numbers shown to him. And uh, the mayor's excuse for not coming public or even going to council with this is he said he didn't believe the numbers. Well, that's inconsequential. Right. Those are the numbers that the province is using. You better make this part of the discussion. As Brad Clark told me yesterday, he said, had we been told back then, we could have developed a different strategy. We could have gone to the feds. We could have done, there's, we could have done something. 
instead of having this bombshell dropped on it on Monday, which is, which is what happened. There are so many but people. But there's, there's an issue here that yeah, I want to so bring up. Ahead. And you remember, I, I don't want to go too deeply into the history here, but when Bob Bertino was the mayor, mm-hmm. uh, he was accused by his council, at, of course, of going to Queen's Park and trying to cut deals about this, that, mm-hmm. about all day go as opposed to LRT, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And they passed a motion uh, in October of 2011 mm-hmm. that basically said the mayor can't do that. And he, there's one clause, I don't want to read the whole thing, is it's always, you know, wherefore, wherefore, wherefore. But here's, here's the most pertinent clause here. That council direct all communication received by elected officials or city staff from any representative of a senior level of government regarding potential funding shall be copied to the mayor, the deputy mayor, members of the Fairness to Hamilton Campaign Committee, the city manager, within 48 hours of receipt. September 26th, I believe, was the last time that he met with the minister. We just found out about this this week. And so, September 5th and, was and, the and, first and, time. And, and his council colleagues are very... And, uh, in other words, he's in the defiance of, of this order. And that order was put in so this very scenario would not happen. So that council in the city had an ability when it was involving other levels of government and funding issues to have some sort of awareness, some level of teamwork. And so you can you can like Fred Eisenberger all you want. Uh, he's, he's personally, I think, a good man. I've known him for a long time. You cannot as someone who understands how these things go, like the fact that the decision to keep this information from stakeholders and power players and and passionate community in, in volunteers who have real knowledge on the issue of LRT, have made solid arguments, have lots of friends and contacts, he didn't let us help. Just like they didn't let us know about whether we should go in the water at Coots Paradise, right? Keeping information from the people who can help you. I don't know what that's about, but it is not good leadership or good governance. Well, and so and we can we can try to scramble to fix this, and we we're, we're all hands we're on deck now. That. We will. We will. Um, but I agree with you, Bill. I saw that clause too this morning, and I remember those days. If we have to put something formal in to make sure that the mayor is not keeping important information away from the rest of council, then let's let's do that. If it's already on the books, council should enforce it. Well, and the, the, this notion of binary, we either keep it completely secret or we go completely public, is nonsense. Uh, th- there is a reason they do in-camera meetings. There is no reason that Fred Eisenberger, the mayor, and the city manager couldn't have called an in-camera meeting with council to say, we got a problem. what we know. We got a problem. We have a problem. What do you think we should do? And I guarantee you some councillors would have recommended that phone calls be made to major stakeholders, like anchor institutions, major developers who committed hundreds of millions of dollars, the Chamber of Commerce, and on it would have gone. But the point is they would control that. It's not like you know the, you have to tell everybody everything all at the same time. You don't. But Fred chose to keep it secret. And I, Bill, I got to say this, and I'm deeply disappointed. Jeanette Smith, our new city manager, is compromised in this because she was at those meetings, according to reports. So she knew. I understand it's a difficult situation for an employee, quote, but she is the city manager. And she decided, agreed with the mayor, in spite of that clause you just read, that she would support secrecy. That is not acceptable. And, and by the way, nobody is suggesting, because I know the mayor is saying that if he had gone public with this, it would have compromised the bidding process. And you can argue whether that's legitimate or not. But that did, uh, nobody's suggesting you run it up the flagpole. Correct. We're suggesting have an in-camera meeting and, is, and inform the council colleagues. And this is the point that, Graham, I think I take from what you've said, that this binary thing, right? Uh, politics is a business of nuance. Yeah. It's a business of gray zones. It is not a black and white business. And the fact that with Sewergate, uh, he, the mayor chose not to tell the mayor of Burlington, a shared waterway that she pays for and has citizens access just like us, because if you tell one person a secret, you know, it's all out there. You're telling me that another mayor can can't understand that, you know, information has to be handled delicately. I have no problem with uh, politicians using whatever tools they have available to them, including in-camera meetings when they're used appropriately, and private meetings. But you can't do this. You can't not tell key stakeholders on major issues, three at least this year. Well, the mayor was on our program earlier this week. Marianne Mead Ward was here, and she's still incensed, and justifiably so. I've heard from her. I've heard from Gary Carr, the regional chairman in Halton, uh, paraphrasing, do you know how many millions of dollars Halton Region? Have dumped into the remediation, and we weren't told about this. 
I mean, <laughs> this is not how you build friendships and partnerships. And it's not how you lead. And and so people can um, be as upset as they want that we're able to talk about both the egregious act of the province cancelling LRT that needs to be reversed uh, and also the poor leadership that we have seen over the past year. I mean, the morning that we found out about the LRT being cancelled, there was a front page over the fold headline article by Andrew Dreschel saying the, ma- the mayor's really bad year. So this is not throwing anybody under the bus. This is an, an obvious, intelligent analysis of what's been going on. Poor communications, poor relationship management, you know, poor handling of major files. And it's extremely frustrating. And as a community, we have to demand better, better accountability, better communication, better transparency. And if we have to invoke that clause, that means that from now on, this cannot be an insular decision by the mayor. It has to be all of council working as a team. Then that's what we have to do. Well, in, in part of your role with uh, Power Group, of course, because I know you talked to some major corporations yes. and some pretty high profile individuals. And, and I know that a common theme you have always maintained uh, is if you screw up or somebody screws up, own it. A hundred percent from the top, right from the, the top, top. Uh, and, 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 and and for and on that mm. apply that to Sewergate. Nobody at City Council made that gate stay open. I nope. mean, it's, it's not no, their they pro- didn't do th- it. but it's their job to do something about it instead of just throwing a cloak over it and maybe it's going to go and away. engaging in Coots cover up. But the yeah, their gate- issue is the cover up. Yeah. It isn't yeah. it isn't the the gate being open. They don't control that. I don't blame them for that, but I absolutely blame them and hold them accountable for the cover up. Which and they did. They willfully did. And and the fact that that we listened to a very upset, uh, deservedly so, mayor on your program uh, when we knew that the province was riding into town with what we all expected a terrible announcement. When he talked about being blindsided, totally shocked. I listened and believed that, and I so thought, I. "Wow, this is just bizarre." I even tweeted, "This makes no sense. How could the mayor not have been consulted or given a heads up or had any knowledge of this?" Uh, it struck me as being something I've never seen in politics ever. It turns out that it wasn't a total blindside. There was pre-knowledge, and so that really frustrates me. And I think it leads to a breakdown of trust of our of our city government uh, between Sewergate and this and the Red Hill cover-up. When you break public trust, I don't know how you build that back. Sure, we'll all scramble to help save the LRT, but that fundamental issue of public trust is gone. And to your point, Bill, if a CEO doesn't immediately act, take accountability, talk about how they're going to do things differently, they usually end up resigning or being parachuted out. You don't, it's very difficult to continue to lead when people just can't trust what's what you're saying or what your office might be doing. Uh, and that I think is a fair analysis. And, and it's it's a really terrible position for our city to be in. You know, Bill, I've got a I advance notice here. I have an op-ed happening in the spec very soon. Howard Elliott said he's going to publish it. What it focuses on, Bill, is something that I've been talking to people about and I, they're feeling. It's something I've, I'm calling civic sadness. I think it's so many big disappointments with our leaders and with our city in a row are overwhelming people. Our pride in our city is being chipped away at. Our faith in our leaders is being chipped away at. And you can only be so angry for so long until it starts to affect you psychologically. And I think there is a sadness that we're feeling. We, we just don't know what to do. And, of course, we're not getting the leadership to help us. It, it, Graham, it stems from the fact that, look, there are a lot of good things that have happened in the city in the last four or five years especially. Yeah. Some great growth, you know, the cranes in the sky, development downtown, lots of investment from all over the world, not just the local investment. But I think the thing that I'm sensing from an awful lot of the the stuff I'm receiving, emails and and tweets and and phone calls, is our civic leaders are supposed to be the leaders, not part of the problem. (laughs) Right. And I know know some of them are rather sarcastically saying, look, we're succeeding in spite of them, not because of that. It's not supposed to be that way. Not only is it not supposed to be that way, uh, but I think to your point, both of you, the reason why people are so disillusioned, disappointed, upset, is because we were getting traction. When I moved to this town, people were pretty downtrodden and pretty upset because a lot of factories had left, jobs had left. It was a really grim time. And I remember we put together those volunteer uh, not-for-profit power conferences to try to boost up the city and get city leaders talking about big-picture solutions. But there, but back then, it was a thought of, wow, we really are experiencing what Rust Belt cities are experiencing. Yeah. This, is a, this is a bigger globalization issue about manufacturing. 
now, because we're seeing the cranes, because we're seeing the beautiful redevelopments of our streets, because um, we have seen a, a burgeoning culinary scene and we've got great traction nationally on so many cultural related issues, to see our politics not only get in our way, but push us back uh, is, I think, why people are feeling such anger. Because we, we got our momentum. <laughs> you know, we had the big mo. Stop this. Get out of the way. Uh, and if you can't get out of the way, maybe consider whether you should be around that horseshoe. Well, I know most of those people around that horseshoe. As a matter of fact, I worked with most of them yeah. at, at one time or another. Uh, and I got a lot of respect for them. They're, they're, they're intelligent. They are dedicated mm-hmm. people. There's, there's nobody around there just, you know, wasting space. But do your job. Mm-hmm. Be a leader. That's all it comes down to. Don't be complacent about this stuff. Speak up when something happens like Pride Week. Speak yeah. up when something happens like this. Speak up when somebody at a closed-door meeting says, look, we're just going to keep this under wraps, okay, because we don't want to take any crap for this. Somebody's got to speak up. And, beca- and you know what? I'm not accusing anyone, nor have I, of outright mendacity or lying. But the decision to not tell the truth Um puts people in a feeling of, how do I trust you if you're holding information from me, not for what seems like good reasons, not telling us about that leak because the sewage uh, that could affect our pets or our water supply or our kids in kayaks or whatever because of legal advice. We didn't hire lawyers to run the city. We hired people that we thought would apply legal advice to their overall decision-making framework. And so that not telling us does as much damage uh, as just being outright dishonest because it makes us not trust. Here's what you do. Here's what you do. Okay, a lawyer says you guys got to keep this under wraps, or you could, you know, put the city in a liable position. So my response would be, well, we've got to tell the people. So you, Mr. Lawyer or Ms. Lawyer, whoever it is, you show me how to craft this letter so we can get that information out there and still protect ourselves. Did anybody ask that question? I don't know. Well, you know, Bill, this, it, is, it a, should have been asked. this is a perfect question because I think we do need to personalize this. I think we do need to name names around that table. We need to stop talking about just leadership in general. I would ask people, given all of these problems that we've been facing in our city this year, it's been a terrible year for leadership in this, civic leadership in this city. Which are the names that have spoken out in support of the residents of Hamilton addressing issues, providing information? Name those councillors and you know what? You don't need one hand to name them, which means that two-thirds of them have been silent. That's the problem. Is we, and, we, and those names exist. We know who's been silent and they need to be named. And goodness knows I know who they are. And that is unacceptable. So we can put a lot of blame on Fred. He is the leader. He always claims his mandate is citywide. So behave that way. But there's a lot of other people who represent a lot of other people who should be talking. We elected 16 leaders. We did Mm -hmm. indeed. And one of the things that uh, is, I think, distinct maybe to Hamilton is the tenure of some of these councillors. I mean, really, really long office tenure, right? And is it because, and I've always wrestled with this, not being from Hamilton originally, is it because Hamiltonians don't expect any better? So they think, well, at least I know that guy, uh, and he fixed my sidewalk once, or he's taken my call once there, or woman, therefore I'm just going to give them another shot because I don't see a better alternative and I don't believe I deserve. I don't know what that is about, uh, because I I can I, I want Hamilton for the new year to think this way if they can. You know, we pay a lot of taxes. We pay a lot more taxes when we have to pay for cover-ups, when we have to pay for legal bills, when we have to pay for remediation, when we have to pay for screw-ups and investigations. It affects you in your pocketbook. So if you keep, it's the definition of insanity. You keep doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. If you don't start looking for alternative leaders for this city and get to know them and get to work with them and understand their vision, then you're going to get the same insanity and make no mistake about it, whether or not you you love them or not, they're costing you money you shouldn't have to be paying. And if that's not something people in Hamilton can really wrestle with, because we need every bit of tax dollar we've got to help people who are homeless, to help people who can't have affordable housing, to help some of our marginalized communities who are truly in desperate need. And if we keep putting money into these ridiculous, unnecessary, unforced errors of investigations, I'm telling you, Hamilton, we are not going to realize our potential. And we need to realize our potential. Well, this is uh, the end of the year. Uh, it's as good a time as any to hit the reset button. And, and I think, for, I think uh, for all 16 of those people around that table to, to do some soul searching over the, the holiday break and just say, you've got to be better. They have to be better. That's all there is to it. Great Guys, com- thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Bill. Thanks for your Happy contributions through the whole year. I hope <laughs> it is, and it yeah. will be.
if we just keep this conversation going. Laura Babcock and, uh, of course, uh, the wonderful and talented Graham Crawford. <laughs> Citizen of the Year. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to switch gears and get to the SNC Lavalin uh, jury or uh, judicial verdict uh, yesterday and the implications of that because uh, that story's not over by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, I also want to pick up on what's going on down in Washington right now too. The day after uh, the uh, Congress, of course, impeached Donald Trump uh, with a vote late, late last uh, yesterday evening. Henry Jasek joins us, professor of political science at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Morning, Henry. How are you doing today? Just fine, Bill. Were you glued to the TV for hours and hours and hours like I was yesterday? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's, uh, it, was a, it was an exciting day in American history. It's, uh, it was tedious a little bit. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the partisanship there, that you and I have talked about this in the past, was, mm-hmm. was evident ju- in just about every aspect of this. Uh, but the vote was uh, somewhat dramatic. Uh, and we saw, well, the reaction from Donald Trump. Uh, we're going to move on to phase two in a second. Give me your read on what you saw and what you heard yesterday. Well, essentially, what we saw was the the Republicans uh, were attacking the process. They were attacking the Democrats. Uh, they were not really talking at all about the substance of the case. Uh, the Dem- the Democrats, on the other hand, uh, were talking about the substance of the case and how it squared with the constitutions and the with the Constitution and the in- and the intentions of the founding fathers of the American Constitution, which. As a political scientist myself, that's the interesting part. I've cause I spent a good part of my time as a gra- as a graduate student, PhD student in Washington, uh, studying with with, sco- with scholars down there about uh, what the founders wanted and uh, what the Constitution was all about, and that whole history. And uh, it's uh, so that it was for me that was an extraordinarily interesting part. I mean, maybe not a lot for a lot of other people, but I think it's the important. It's really the the heart of the issue. Is that what? What does the Constitution mean? Uh, what does the? How would the? Con, how would the Constitution and the founders uh, look at what Donald Trump has done, and what decision would they make? And I think for me, that's the most important question. Is there any wiggle room there? Because as some of the speakers, Henry, were simply saying, "Look, this is it. The Constitution's in black and white. There's, there's, there's no room here for interpretation." And others are saying, "Well, they sort of meant this." I mean, I guess it really depended on the perspective or the point you were trying to make. Well, I think it was how high the bar is. I mean, they were saying what 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 Trump did was okay. That he, you know, presidents have done that, and there's no, there's nothing wrong with that. And and but of course they they didn't spend a lot of time arguing about that. I mean, the facts uh, they didn't contest the facts. They really, they, and they didn't really want to spend a lot of time saying that what he did was was okay. I mean, that was their position, but they'd rather, you know, switch the gears and attack the Democrats and attack the process without really stating a strong case why that uh, what he did, uh, while a lot of people might be upset with it, maybe it's a bit wrong, but it's not important enough to remove the president. And so there was very little of that. And uh, going forward into the Senate, I think we'll probably hear the same sort of thing. We're not going to hear much talk about Republicans saying, "Okay, I didn't like what he did, but uh, it's not high. It's not. Uh, it's not Im- important enough to remove the president." It's interesting when you look at this uh, on, uh, in hindsight, uh, and you, your point about contrition, I think, is well taken here. That uh, even during the Clinton impeachment hearings, I mean, after, you know, when it seemed as if obviously we knew he was going to be exonerated by the, the democratically dominated Senate at that time, but Clinton was still contrite through that process. Uh, Clinton still told his staff, cooperate with these people, you know, that we're not going to put up any roadblocks. We've got the, the polar opposite of this with the Trump administration, where he has basically told his senior staff, you guys don't even pay attention to subpoenas. Uh, now, if you and I did that, Henry, we'd get tossed in jail the next day, but apparently they, they get a get-out-of-jail card uh, as far as that goes. It's, it's a much different scenario this time. It's a different scenario, and... Uh what what could have happened, and as some some of the people on the uh, Trump side said, well, why didn't you take all these subpoenas to the Supreme Court, eventually to the Supreme Court, take it into the court system, and have them make a decision? That would prolong probably the the impeachment hearing into June. Uh, by the time the uh, the court would 
because they would really have to consider these and, and write good decisions. Uh, they would have to consider them, as I said, and write very thorough decisions. Uh, and that's going to that would take until June. And the Democrats said, you know, this is an election year. This is what makes it a bit awkward because we are so close to an upcoming election. So they, you know, the the Democrats made the decision. There was enough of evidence, enough enough of probable cause to uh, to indict him. That's what impeachment is. To, to let to send it over to the Senate. Now it's the Senate's job essentially to really uh, look at the evidence. That that's really what their obligation is, and decide whether uh, you know he, he merits removal or not. And I think now that's going to be the big question. But in terms of what went on in the House, the founders, you know, didn't expect that the House of Representatives was go- were going to have to, you know, weigh all the evidence and have a, have a trial. The trial's in the Senate, and so that's why they said only a majority of the House of Representatives was needed to send it on to the Senate. And they recognized that the that the members of the House of Representatives would be closest to the people in terms of their views. And we keep in mind that the the members of the House of Representatives were elected in an election last year, so all of them had to face the electorate last year. They all had two years of Trump at that point, and so they could make a decision, and they decided to basically give the House of Representatives over to the Democrats. And now it goes. Now it goes over the Senate, and the Senate now the bar is much high, higher. The, it's now two thirds of the Senate, and we know that for uh, two thirds of the Senate did not have to face the electors last year. So they are people who were elected before Trump actually had any experience as president. So it's a much higher bar, and they're the ones who have to go through. And, and really weigh the evidence on the substance. And that, I think that's what the founders intended. And I think the Democrats' big fear, you know, and this is what they're concerned about, is that there will be not a full, fair, and complete uh, trial in the Senate uh, on the merits of the case, and uh, which, which is what the founders really wanted. I'm getting that sense as well because I don't get the, uh, the, the at this time anyway any feeling that there's going to be any new information that's going to come out of this uh, because Mitch McConnell's basically said he doesn't want to call witnesses. I mean, so it's really going to be a regurgitation of what we've already seen, isn't it? Uh, uh, yes, assuming that some of the Republican senators and he doesn't mean he, he can have only you know three if three of the Republican senators say I agree with the Democrats we should have these witnesses the and these are Trump appointees. By the way, these are the ones yeah, that yeah. Uh, they want. If, if they could vote with the Democrats, and it's a simple majority uh, that would then say, "Okay, these people have to come for the trial in the Senate." And if they don't come, the subpoena would be issued by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, who is who is in charge of the procedure in the Senate. Now, it's one thing for these people to fight, you know, the House of Representatives in the lower courts over a subpoena and drag it out. Now, are they going to, if they get a subpoena from the Chief Justice, uh, are they going to say, thumb their nose at the Chief Justice? That would be, you know, it's hard to imagine, because they know the penalty for doing that will be, will be very, very large uh, when, when, they, when they are brought, when they are charged with the, ignoring the subpoena of, of a Chief Justice. It would just be, you know, they, they will be treated very harshly. That's the expectation. So with that, that, that probable conclusion, then, is, is there really any sort of an appetite for Republicans to bring a, a John Bolton or a Mick Mulvaney or any of these other people that are being bandied about here to actually come before that committee? Well, the well, trial, really. In terms of the Republicans, there's two types of Republicans who might go. Remember, they only need three Republicans yeah. to join the Democrats. So first of all, you might have those who are really uh, facing an electorate that really wants uh, a full and complete trial. And there are some senators up for election this year where the population of, the, of their state really is in favor of, 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 of basically the Democratic position. We think uh, the state of Maine, where they have a, a, a Congre- uh, Senator Collins is up for re- re-election. And there's some other states as well. And we have another type of Republican who essentially, well, actually three types. A second type of Republican would be somebody who does have a song, strong sense of honor and really doesn't really, you know, doesn't want to go down in history as somebody who's just been a coward on this issue. And here we think of Mitt Romney, the former uh, presidential candidate of the Republicans, who won overwhelming victory in Utah 
and I would think the people in Utah would support him no matter what he would do. And then a third type might be somebody who's th- saying, who's thinking, I'm never going to run for the Senate uh, again, so I really want to go down in history as a person who did something honorable. And they're not, it's not like they would be voting for removal, but they would be revo- uh, voting in favor of an honorable and a, f- a full and fair election. And so you only need three of those, three of those type of senators. And, you know, that it's not beyond the realm of possibilities. They may, they may, they may vote for uh, motions like that that are put by the Democrats. It's uh, going to be fascinating to watch the dynamic. And, of course, that doesn't even start now, does it, until uh, Nancy Pelosi hands over the articles of impeachment to the Senate. And she uh, seems hesitant to do that, I guess, until they get some resolution to the stuff you've just talked about. Yeah, I don't think she's gonna. I, I don't think she's gonna go that long. And actually, she's gonna meet the press later today in the morning or later this morning. And uh, I, I would suspect maybe and this is my guess. I, if I were her, and the thing, if I can put my get myself in head, I think she's gonna ask uh, that she have a face-to-face meeting with the Democrat. Uh, sorry, with the Republican majority leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, and basically, let's say, let's talk about this. And see if she can make any headway on a one-to-one basis with him uh, in private. I don't think she can, but I think that's probably she would. That's her last shot. I think she would think, well, maybe I can, maybe I can, we 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 can have some sort of compromise here. Um, it, it may not work, but I think, but I don't think she's going to hold it up forever. I think she, I think she'll say, we're going to. I want to have a discussion with the House Majority Leader before I actually hand hand this over. Uh, that's what I think is going to happen. I may be wrong about that, but that that sounds something that I think is reasonable under the circumstances. High drama in Washington, and we'll certainly follow that. Let me switch gears if I could. We've got a couple of minutes left here. Uh, the SNC-Lavalin uh, case has been resolved. They've pled guilty to, I guess, a lesser charge. Uh, they paid a, it's a substantial fine, but nowhere near the kind of punishment uh, that, uh, that was being talked about, you know, about being banned from uh, going for contracts and all this stuff for a number of years. Uh, it, does the prime minister look at something like this, Henry, and say, why did I go through all that for? This is the way it was going to resolve itself anyway. Yeah, I mean, he probably has some second thoughts about how he handled the matter. I mean, I mean, you look, uh, my view, looking at the prime minister, I think he made a bunch of mistakes uh, in dealing with uh, the office of attorney general all the way through. He, first of all, he appointed somebody who had never sat in the House of Commons, who had never sat on, uh, in, in the cabinet, and essentially he sort of gave her the impression, and I think she picked it up, and he was sending these kinds of signals, you're a special person. Um, you're you're gonna you're gonna have a lot of authority, and you're gonna, you're pretty much can do what you want as, as as attorney general. That's the message I think he sent out. And then when she decided to do it on an issue he really cared about, he he started to pull that back, and that's when he got into trouble. Uh, I mean, I think uh, I think probably he, you know he's starting to do some things in the second term that he wouldn't have done it in the first term. And I'll give you an example. Uh, most people would not have noticed it. I, a political scientist, I would. Uh, for as long as I can remember, in the Amer- in the Canadian cabinet, you would have people we'd call regional ministers, mm-hmm. ministers who were not only in charge of a portfolio but in charge of a regional area. So we know uh, that they would they would be in- they would be in charge of those areas uh, to sort of give out the the government's message. So for many years in Hamilton, that would have been John Carr Monroe would have sure. done that for, yeah. for, for uh, the father, for, for, for Pierre. Uh, Justin came in, he says, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to appoint the best people. I'm not going to have regional ministers. And so the result is that, you know, he, 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 now, he now seems to be reneging on that, and now we can see that somebody like uh, Philomena Tassi in Hamilton West has... has sort of grown into that role as being the Hamilton area minister. Again, even though that's something he wouldn't have acknowledged four years ago. So he tried to change the system in some ways, and I think he's probably found out the system is probably works better <laughs> the usual way. You know, we saw the same thing with the Senate when he had independent members. That hasn't worked out the greatest, but not a big mistake. But uh, certainly, you know, when he promised to re- reform the electoral system, and that was a terrible, that, that was a big mistake because he couldn't deliver on that. People didn't want it, and it would, it was just a mess. And he basically had to fire a minister who, you know, it wasn't her fault it didn't work out. It, that was his fault. He promised something that essentially he couldn't deliver on. So he's 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 now a smarter but wiser prime minister <laughs> compared to the guy who came in four years ago. 
and thought he was going to change the whole system and do things differently. And he finds that, you know, the institutions, on the one hand, the expectations of the Canadian people, uh, the same uh, together with the institutions, really are not open to tremendous change the way he thought he was going to be able to do it. But there's got to be a little part of him in the back of his head right now, Henry, that's thinking, geez, you know, this, this, the, the bad moves he made, and you're right, he has readily admitted that, you know, I messed this up in a, in a whole lot of ways. Yeah, uh, I think there, pro- probably I think cost him his majority government. Yeah, I think there's one. I think that he gave an interview or made some comments of, about, well, maybe I should have played the SN, you know, the SNC Lavalin issue a little differently. But yeah, I, but I do think I do think there's little things coming out. He's not he's not the type. He's not going to go in front of the cameras and just say these are all my mistakes and lay them out for you in a very dramatic way. But you can just watch how he's changing things slowly, and he's, there's little tidbits there. So you can see somebody who's really who has learned, and I mean that's not unusual. I mean he 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 um, he had never sat sat himself. He had never sat in the cabinet. So he you know he had a lot of learning to do. He's made some mistakes, and he's correcting those mistakes, those institutional mistakes. And uh, I think he's going to probably run a more realistic government. Uh, it's a minority government, but it's going to be more realistic in terms of our institutions and in terms of the expectations of the Canadian people. Speaking of those expectations, I mentioned this uh, just off the top of our conversation here. Uh, the resolution of this in the courts does not necessarily mean this is over. The opposition are still trying to make some political hay out of this. And uh, now, the, of course, it's a minority government. Uh, they don't have the, the hammer. The, the, gov- the liberals don't have the hammer anymore. Uh, there is still the possibility of investigations and, and parliamentary investigations. And if they want to go down that road, they can drag this thing out for quite some time. They could, but I think it's not in their political interest. Uh, the conservatives, of course, have a big problem, is that uh, while it's a minority government, there is a strong block of a Bloc Québécois members there. And, you know, they certainly, you know, they don't want to give an impression to, the, to their constituents that they're going to go up against a, a, a Quebec mini, uh, prime minister who was looking out for the interests of Quebec. In some ways, uh, the position of Trudeau is now stronger because he he can count on those uh, on those Bloc Québécois people to support him, and 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 we know that the, the the conservatives have a big problem in Quebec. They're not looked at as being Quebec friendly, and the more they attack what is seen as a Quebec corporation, SNC Lavalin is seen as a Quebec corporation. The more they attack and raise that issue, the more unfriendly they look to Quebec. And that is not going to get them, you know, into any situation where they can, uh, you know, run the government. And notwithstanding the, the turmoil that was going on at the height of that uh, with the, the, the yeah. resignation and everything else, uh, poll after poll, even during the election campaign itself, said Canadians have basically said, move on. Yeah, we were ticked off about that, but we've moved yeah. on. You guys should move on. So I think it'd be, you're right, I think if the Conservatives try to move this forward, I think they're going to do so at their own peril. There and I mean they have enough of trouble. I mean they have trouble in Ontario. They, I mean the big problem with them is that they they do not appeal uh, as a party and their traditional stances as being friendly to to Ontario and Quebec. And uh, they're not going to get anywhere. They're not going to get a majority until they get there. And the only time they they were able to get into Ontario is when they faced uh, my uh, Ignatyov, who was, you know arguably the the weakest leader of the liberal party in in Canada's history well they're not facing a person like that anymore and so the conservatives have a real problem they have a real problem with ontario a real problem with quebec and most of the seats in the in the house of commons are quebec and ontario seats and they've got to figure a way of how to make themselves look appealing to those two provinces and that's what i think a lot of what they're they're going through now and even if they try to become appealing, they they may not get it right, you know. So I, they may not really understand how to really make themselves look uh, appealing to Quebec and Ontario. Well, of course, and they've also got to find themselves a leader. So that that's something they, uh, exactly. that'll be a priority as well. Henry, we got to jump in. Uh, thanks as always. Great to get your perspective. Lots more coming up in the days ahead, and I know we'll talk again. Okay, very good, and happy holidays. Happy Christmas to you. Thank you so much, and to you too, Henry. Henry Jason, right. of course, political science professor from McMaster University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.